one of my goals as a pastor is to always be honest with you. Regardless of what's going on, if you ask me how I'm doing, and I can tell that you are really interested, I'll actually tell you. And I'll go ahead and tell you, this week has been a hard week. Uh, and it's not because of any one in particular thing, but I can tell that spiritual warfare is heavy. I can tell that the enemy has been very much against anything that I would have to say today, my time in preparation for this. And it's all because it's on the subject of love. And I think that it has been Satan's uh, grand masterpiece to rob many churches of their love. Because love is always relational. And love is either happening vertically and horizontally, or it's not in either way. It's not, well, I'm loving my brother as myself, or I'm loving my sister as myself, but I, I don't love my Lord. It doesn't happen like that. Well, I really love God, but I just can't stand the church. That doesn't happen. Those are not things that work as far as God's concerned. And so I, I will tell you, um, I, I am overwhelmed right now with just exactly how inadequate I am to present this to you. Um, because in a lot of situations, I'm not a loving person. And it, it has been a, a very um, solid piercing of my heart to think about where it doesn't equal up in my life. It's a heavy point of conviction. And uh, my hope is that it makes us all crave the Lord Jesus to be living his life in us more. Because I tell you what, we can't live this life. We can't. I know you hear me say that a lot. Sometimes I feel like I'm talking to a wall. And I know you guys aren't a wall. But sometimes that, that's what it feels like. Grace Bible Church is an incredibly interesting and different church. When I came here, I couldn't believe how God has used Pastor Steve to set the tone for this body. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not rooms for improvement. And I know that some of the elders know, especially I talk their ears off about where things could improve and go forward and how things could be better. And I talked to the staff about that, about I'm not trying to be critical, but I know that the Lord demands for us to be trusting his spirit. He's not looking for perfection. He's looking for trust. He's looking for faith. And especially when I think about how apart I am from the ideal that's set out here in, in 1 Corinthians 13. Gosh, I need Jesus. I need him bad. So if we look at this, please, uh, number one, we're doing a, a series called The Gifts and the Body. And everything we've been looking at is spiritual gifts. And one of the greatest mistakes that we make when we get to 1 Corinthians 13 is we forget that we're talking about gifts. And this is how 1 Corinthians 13 ends up on your wedding invitation. And this is how it ends up in the card that you give people who are getting married and anniversary cards. And all love is patient, love is kind. And if you really thought about that for a while, you might go, why am I getting this for my spouse? What? You know, you might think that. You might be tempted in that direction. What we find out is the context for this is spiritual gifts. It's how I interact with you and how you interact with me and how we interact with one another. And there's a lot to be said about this. Now before we jump in, I want to take us back to probably the best definition that I was able to find about what this type of love is. And this is given by Charles Ryrie. Here's what he says. Agape, that's the type of love, characterizes God. So it's God's type of love. It's one thing for me to have a type of love. It's another thing for God's love to be reigning in me. That's a whole different person. That's the Jeremy you want to know. Is the Jeremy who God is radiating through. That's where it comes from. It characterizes God and what he manifested in the gift of his son. So notice automatically what Ryrie wants to put together for us is if it's anything, it's a selflessness. It's giving out and it's selfless. It is more the mutual affection. It expresses unselfish esteem of the object love. Christ's love for us is undeserved and without thought of return. That's the thing that grabs us. Well, if I'm going to take the time to love this person, what am I going to get? 
Now here's the question. If you do take the time to submit yourself to the love of God through you for another person, what do you get? You might know. You get something. What do you get? Starts with a B, ends with a lesson. Anybody? Anybody? Blessing. Does God not bless obedience? Oh, yeah, he does. And he commands us to love. But here's the stipulation. Love my way. Oh, gosh, how do I do that? I have to love them through you. See, that's different. And because this is a call to obedience, it's automatically coupled. It's automatically linked to submission. And submission is the great dirty word of Christianity. Because we're fine letting our Christianity go. We're just kind of trying to be us. I'm free in Christ. I can do it. But I tell you what, without submitting yourself to the Father, you cannot love. You cannot love God's way. You may be pleasant. If you're me, uh, you might find me tolerable. But I tell you what, that wears off quickly. God wants to go deeper. God loves to dig deeper because he wants to take us to places we could never travel to ourselves. He must lead us there. And we must say, here I am, Lord. I'm going. I submit to where you're going to take me. It says here, the love that his followers show, Paul now says, should be the same. Selfless, expecting nothing in return. Desirous of the betterment of the person we're looking to lavish love on and not, okay, my turn, my turn. I scratched your back, my turn, my turn. It's not that. It's not. So now, 1 Corinthians 13, 1. We covered this last week. We'll go through it quickly. And he brings up different gifts. He's connecting 12 to 13 for us. If I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, if it's not coded in love, I have become a noisy gong and a clingy symbol. Now, if you remember, that's how the pagans worshipped. If you want to know what makes Christianity different from pagan religions in the first century in the eyes of the people of Corinth, love is the distinguishing marker. Now, if you will think back just a little bit about what you know about Corinthians, because every first Sunday I read this passage over and over when we celebrate the Lord's table. Back in chapter 11, Weren't people showing up early and eating a bunch of the food? And some guys were over there in the corner and they're all pouring themselves wine and they're all just blitzed by the time everybody else gets there. Is that love? No. It's love of self. But that's not God's type of love. It's a carnal love. It's the self-life that's supposed to be crucified that has to be put to death by the deeds of the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the deeds of the flesh. If you're going to exercise a spiritual gift of tongues and there is no amount of love in it whatsoever, you've just become a smashed symbol. That's it. There's nothing that defines you as significant. There's nothing worthy. There's nothing spiritual there. Now, I would imagine with Corinth's problem and wanting to have competition with one another about, well, we have the greater gifts. We have the showy gifts. We all speak in tongues. Look at what we can do. Is there any love in competition? No, in fact, we've tried to make it like that. We call it sportsmanlike conduct, right? And when it doesn't happen, we call it unsportsmanlike conduct and we penalize a person because competition breeds fierceness out of us we're here to win for our team now before you ridicule me i wore my packer socks today okay so leave me alone but in the church it's not so look at verse two if i have the gift of prophecy able to able to preach and know all mysteries and all knowledge so i have that gift as well and if i have all faith i'm believing beyond the logical capacity to see what god can do so as to remove mountains that's a pretty big deal If I have these gifts, but I do not have love, I am, Robertson's translation, absolutely zero. Nothing in my account. You are bankrupt. You are a bankrupt Christian as not having benefit in the body of Christ. Verse 3, if I give another spiritual gift, 
all my possessions to feed the poor, everything you have. Think of the rich young ruler, right? Take all that you have, sell it, give the money to the poor, come follow me. And he went away grieved because he owned lots of stuff. If you were to do that, if you were actually to follow through where he failed, and even if you surrender your body up to be burned for the sake of Christ, but you don't have love, it benefits you, it profits you, it accomplishes absolutely zero. Same word. There's nothing to be gained whatsoever. Sorry, I'm not keeping up with myself. That is what love is not. So the question becomes, what is love? What does it look like then? Now, the problem is we've had everybody telling us over the years, you know, I'm going to pick on the Beatles, right? Because all you need is love and she loves you. Anybody? Right? They also said, love me do. Right? You get in the 90s, you learn, what is love? Right? That one? Anybody? Yeah. Everybody wants to talk about love. Everybody's got a perspective on love. You read everything surrounding it and you go, man, this isn't 1 Corinthians 13, love. What is this? This is all let's have a Coke and a smile and try to get along. This isn't going to work. It's not. Some of you remember that commercial, don't you? Like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. So would Emily, but that ain't going to accomplish anything. (laughs) If it doesn't have the love of Christ behind it, it doesn't matter. It's just noise. And see, that's the problem. The world is craving love, and the world has been sold and been taught what to think about what love is. Here's your definition. Now interpret your life. Our middle schoolers and high schoolers have been sold that love is sex. And that sex is love. And if you want to be loved, you'll just give it up to whoever because you just want to be needed by somebody. Good grief. That's what the world perpetuates. Doesn't take long standing in the line at Walmart to look at the magazine ads to see that one, does it? It's all about it, coupled together. That's not what true love is. It's not what God's love is. What is it? Number one. Love is what? Patient. Oh, good grief. Didn't Paul just stab you and kind of turn the knife a little bit once it got in there? It's long-suffering. It sticks with it. It doesn't give up easily. It's not, you know what? I've had enough. You give somebody some time, and if they see an escape hatch, they'll take it. This is why divorce is skyrocketing. Oh, that's all there is to it? Great. We're out. Cash in my chips and go home. Really? Was that love? No, because love is selfless. Love sees the need of someone that will long suffer and endure and stick in there with that person through that time. That should be every one of us for one another. Understand, the idea of love being patient is not love calls you to be a doormat. Jesus was never a doormat. He never allowed people to walk on him. Not one time. But he was patient with people. How about the next one? Love is what? Kind. What does kind mean? Considerate. Considering other people is better than yourself. That you have a pleasant response or attitude. It's one of the things I struggle with the most. In my mind somewhere else, I remember my mind was somewhere one time, and uh, Mary, I was in my, I was in my uh, uh, office, Mary Bilkey popped her head in, she goes, Pastor, I looked up, I go, what? She jumped. I said, I'm sorry. She goes, I've never had anybody respond to me like that before. I'm like, well, great, because the pastor just did, you know. <laughs> Chalk one up for me, God. So, being considerate of that recognizing that's what people need people need to see that love and that love is always demonstrated relationally and it's always demonstrated in our often our responses to them notice that being patient is a passive situation but being kind is an active situation how about the next one it's not jealous it doesn't envy one of the greatest problems 
is when we judge our spirituality and our holiness next to our brothers and sisters. I just wish I could be like Florence Dalton. You know? I know we all do. You know what Florence Dalton would say? You need to be like Jesus. That's kind of that response makes us want to be like Florence Dalton, right? But let's be honest. There's no jealousy or envy that's supposed to exist in the body of Christ. Why? Because I'm not here to outrun you. You're not here to outrun me. We're not here to outperform one another. We're not here to do better, try harder. That's a lie from the enemy. And as soon as I begin to think that my brother and sister is my competition, I have started creating the schism, the dissension, enmity in the body of Christ. Well, if you think back to what we just glazed over in Galatians, that was part of the work of the flesh, not the work of the spirit. Jealousy has no place in love. Think about how much you love your spouse. Do you love them with a jealous love? Can you trust them with somebody of the opposite sex? If you can't, you don't have a God-like love. That might not be your fault. Maybe they've given you reason for distrust. If they've allowed those kind of traces of infidelity in the relationship, whether it be physical or emotional, it doesn't matter, that's created a distorted view of love for you. Only God can restore that to the type of trust it needs to be. How about love does not brag? I loved when I looked this one up. It's not vainglorious. I don't know. That makes me think there needs to probably be a worldly superhero named that. Who's going to help us? Vainglorious is here. Right? You can see it, right? The hair and the whole deal. Cape. Vainglorious. Look at me. Guess what I did? Or, and I'm going to go ahead and show my cards here. I'm not a small talker, okay? I'm not. You know I'm not if you've talked with me. But I also don't like the one-up person. You ever been in that situation? Yeah, it was really just the worst thing. We were on vacation, got that flat tire. It was pretty hot out, but, you know, we got it done. Yeah, Yeah, well, I was on vacation one time, and the wheels actually came off the car. And we continued to skid for a mile and a half. And it's like this story, and you're just like, right? Right? Notice how that one, bragging, vainglorious, to boast about things. Notice it's coupled with and is not arrogant. Now, what's interesting is some scholars have gone over this in a translation that's come out based on the NASB 95. They actually retranslated this word to puffed up because that's what the word means. Blowing up your head. It's the idea of pride being the air that is escalating yourself. Or this. Arrogance is nothing more than a lie that looks good. That's what it is. We're going to tell the story in a way. We're going to sugarcoat it. We're going to promote ourselves and present ourselves in such a way to where there's great falsehood. It's almost so polished it can't be true. The person is so puffed up. The way that it's used again in Corinthians that we probably best know is when Paul is calling out the guy for being with his stepmom, but he turns to the church, he says, and you are arrogant about this. You're puffed up about it. You've got a big head thinking this is a good thing. Cast this guy out. You're not to allow sin like this in your congregation. No, it's unacceptable. God does not accept it. How about the next one? Does not act unbecomingly. Let me give you a very plain understanding of that. It's not rude. Selfless, godlike love has a forethought of how it cares for other people how words are going to be received. That's one of the greatest problems I have. Sometimes I just say what I'm thinking. It doesn't always go over well, does it? (laughs) Nothing but smiles. Because that's the kind of person she is, and that's good. It's not always handled well. It's not always dealt with well. There's a lot of pulling feet out of my mouth. A lot of it that has to happen. It's not behaving dishonorably. Not shamefully, not being disgraceful. It's the fact that you have a general respect for other people. How about the next one? It does not seek its own. It's not self-exalting. It's not looking to better yourself. It's not asking the question, how can I get ahead here? These people are just simply stepping stones of which to reach my pinnacle. That's why one of the first questions I asked Zach when I interviewed him for the youth pastor job is, do you have any desire to preach? He said, no. I said, great. He's not out to get my job. That's wonderful. I wanted to know, right? 
But if he was out seeking his own, you got something to worry about. I was showing love. (laughs) Notice also, it's not provoked. That's an interesting word. In other words, when somebody offends you, you don't get stirred up to anger easily. This is probably one of the most hardest, most hardest, good grammar, words, deals on here. Is when somebody has come against you and has said something, how do you not take it personally? How do you not internalize it? How do you not let it eat you alive in that situation? Love is the preventative of being provoked like that. You're not easily aroused to anger. An example we might think is that in Acts 17, whenever Paul showed up in Athens, it says he looked around and he saw all the idols that were around him and his spirit was provoked inside of him. He was hot about the fact that so much idolatry was going on in one place. And it caused him to dispense of his regular method of ministering to people in every town he'd been at that moment. And he just started preaching like the Dickens to try to convert people to Christ. It's something that deep-seated moves us. Well, guess what? Love shields against taking those things personally and behaving irrationally. Notice also that it does not take into account a wrong suffered. Probably your translation, which you might be used to, is it keeps no record of wrongs. Now, we know this one, especially if you're married, right? You've got that one kind of inside your coat pocket here. No record of wrongs. So when your spouse brings up old stuff, you say, why are you bringing up old stuff? If you loved me, you would keep no record of those wrongs. All of a sudden, we became very self-serving in that assertion of what love is, weren't we? No record of wrongs. One author put it this way. Does not reckon the evil. If evil happens in a situation, it's not even considered. You're able to let it roll off like water off a duck's back, overlooking that person. We have this problem sometimes when when we're dealing with people who aren't saved. It's almost like we expect unsaved people to be moral, but they're devoid of the Holy Spirit. Why? Why? One of the greatest mistakes we we also make is, is churches in America. Let's get them to clean up their acts so we can tell them about Jesus. Why? Well, you're going to have to stop doing drugs if Jesus is going to love you. Really? Are you sure? I thought it was because I do drugs that Jesus loves me. I thought it was my helplessness that makes his heart gush forth for me. Sometimes we lose sight of the real point of the cross and we put preconditions and barriers where there don't need to be any. Grace tore all that down. Love is what invites us in. One problem with this idea of taking into account a wrong suffered is a critical point of forgiveness that needs to happen. I just want you to think about this just by way of application and then we'll move on. But, but consider for a second. Do you have any unforgiveness in your life against somebody that is actually serving as a barrier that keeps you from loving God's type of love with people? If that's the case, it's got to be confessed. And here's the objections. They don't deserve to be forgiven. You're right. They don't. They are scoundrels. They are scum. Correct. But we're to be tenderhearted to one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. How did Jesus forgive you? That's exactly how we ought to forgive others. They don't deserve it. They don't. Neither did I. God did it anyway because of what Christ did. There was a greater incentive to forgive. The requirement's already been met. What are we holding against them? That's when it becomes bitterness. And bitterness will kill you. Understand this. Bitterness is an emotion that we hold on to that kills us. Neil Anderson says it this way. Unforgiveness and bitterness is like swallowing poison and waiting for the other person to die. It doesn't happen. You're always the one who croaks. If you're keeping a record of wrongs, forgiveness is an issue. And if not forgiving somebody is the issue, recognize, please be aware and humble yourself the fact of you don't love. That's the core issue. Now notice I'm not asking you to... to, to you know, fall down on your face and do some sort of penance, all that, and conjure up love in your heart for that person all of a sudden. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm saying throw yourself down at the feet in the mercy of God and saying, Lord, I don't love. Make me loving. Make me loving for your name's sake. 
If God isn't going to do the sanctifying work in us, it's not getting done. Again, we have to submit. How about six? It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. The world has enough people applauding its sin. In fact, have you noticed that all the sins that are now acceptable in our age, they've actually turned them into sciences and we're teaching classes on how well people sin? Isn't that interesting? We have colleges that teach queer theory. Anybody want to attend a queer theory class? How well do you think it would be is like, listen, everybody in this room was created in the image and likeness of God, but what you guys are doing is sin. Is that loving? I think it is. I think it's a very loving way to say it and telling the truth to people. Are you looking to be belligerent and harass? No. You're just simply here to tell the truth. This isn't something to be studied. It's something to be repented of. The world's got it completely wrong. How about this? But, we like this part, rejoices with the truth. It finds good and wonderful God things established in the word of which to say yes. Man, I don't know. For real, I was sitting in the back. Worship was hot today. You know? Emily and her group's doing the usual good job, but it seems like everybody came prepared today. Praise God! That's great! And everything we're singing about is everything to rejoice over. If you prepare yourself to come to worship, thank you! Because it's infectious. I was excited about it. Wasn't feeling too good about today's sermon. Guess what? I saw everybody worshiping God. I was like, this is great! You know? If I stink, they're still going to play afterwards. That's great! You know? Wonderful. Thing. Right there. Be gracious. He'll, he'll get there. This is the thing of God, the things of God that result in praise. Do you realize when you're praising God over the truth, you're exercising love. You're exercising God's kind of love. This is everything angels sing about in glory. Is over truthful things and they're rejoicing and they're exhibiting that love. How about the next one? Bears all things. The Greek word here means to protect, to cover. It's the idea that I'm looking out for my brother and sister in Christ. It's not about me coming out ahead. It's about making sure that they have safe passage to where they need to be in all things. If I'm exhibiting love, they come before me in the line. The way you usually tell that is if you get a bunch of Baptists together and have a, have a potluck, you find out who's loving real quick. They're the ones in the back, okay? Moving on. That's a joke. Never mind, that was bad. How about believes all things? We know the word belief. It's the idea of faith. It's a confident conviction that something is true. There are some people you look at, and man, I just don't know they're going to know it. You know what? Give them the benefit of the doubt as your brother and sister in Christ. Exercise that love towards them. It's probably that grand encouragement that they need in order to get something done. To have somebody who's actually saying yes, this is a godly thing to move forward in. How about hopes all things? Oh, I'm ahead of myself, am I? Yeah, I am. There you go. Hopes all things. The idea that there's always a positive end in the end. No Christian should ever be pessimistic about the future. We may go through hard times. We may suffer persecution. We may see everything getting ready to go off the edge. You know what? That's okay. We all know that Jesus Christ comes back to get us. He will at the proper time. He will at the appointed time. Trust his timing in that. We can always fall back on that truth in all things. Notice also it endures all things, to bear patiently. But also we see love never fails. There's never a failure in God-like love. It never happens. One guy put it this way, love holds its place. Love is always there. You're never without it. It's always going to stand. Now here's a question. How do we get from where we might be if we feel like that we're separated in that situation? I'm just not there in my God-like love with people. How do, how do I get there? How does that work? I'll go ahead and tell you I don't have all the answers, but here's what I believe the Bible tells us. I know we've seen this chart here and there over and over again. We're all made up of three. Three things, body, soul, spirit, all of us. When you believe in Christ, your spirit, right here, is now renovated by the Holy Spirit. Your spirit becomes the condo that the Holy Spirit moves into. He's come in. He cleans house. 
He's renovating it, and your spirit is actually made righteous. And your spirit is where you have God consciousness. So when you have some sort of conviction that comes over your life, you're sensing red flags in a situation, there's some sin or temptation that's coming your way, and you know, there's something in you that's telling you no. That's because your spirit is responding to that. It's resonating from that. When somebody comes to faith in Christ, this is what takes place. The soul is made up of your mind, your will, and emotions. Your mind... How you think about things, not your brain, your mind, how you think about things, your will, your choices, your volition in what you do, and your emotions, what flows out of what you believe about a certain situation. When we hear about the death of someone, it brings tears. When we hear about the birth of a child, it brings joy. All of that emanates from the soul responding to the truth that it's believing at that moment. The body is the point of influence. Because we're either being influenced by outside things that are causing us to sin and think differently than God's Word, or we're being responsive to the Spirit as the Spirit is teaching us in the Word of God, and we are instead living the life of Christ out of us because the soul is choosing to follow the Spirit instead of the body. Does that make sense? Everybody get that? What is a situation that deals with love? How would that work? Well, if the Holy Spirit resides in us here, don't you think that love wants to work its way out? That's exactly what God does. That's why we can't sit here and judge performances. Well, this person doesn't have their life altogether. They've been a Christian for two years. I don't think they're really saved. Stop all that junk. The Holy Spirit is changing people from the inside out, not from the outside in. He starts with the Spirit and works outward. The world wants to start with the body and wants to get us to hear the things and see the things and touch the things that we have no business being in and therefore corrupt the decision-making of the soul to follow the impulses and what they call them is, is, is fleshly desires, the lusts of the flesh and get us in that direction. How do we love? What does God tell us? God, I know your word tells me that love is patient and kind. And as I'm thinking through my life right now and kind of what I'm seeing, that's not me. But because of who Christ is in me, I can be that. Why? Because the Spirit dwells in me. It's just you reciting back truth to the Lord and praying this out. But if you're not willing to come to God on this situation, He will not work God-type love through us. We have to abandon this broken house. Anybody, anybody see that house that was on stilts and the waves came up and kind of crushed the stilts and just carried the house away? Anybody see that? Anybody want to live in there? Anybody want to be in the second story of that one being like, ooh, we're moving. Anybody? No, not at all. Because there's nothing stable about that whatsoever. And it may look good while you're on the inside of it, but it's all going to come crashing down because of what's been surrounded in it. Understand this. If we don't understand what the Bible says about this, we will never be changed. So we've got to be convinced. The truth has got to convince us that that's the right way. How do we do that? Well, Here's an amazing thing. Jesus shows us that he is the model for love in this earthly life. Why read the Gospels? I told you this last week. If for no other reason to see Jesus and how he interacts with people and to watch a full-fledged demonstration of love. How does this work? Number one, he's patient. Now, if you're like me, the first example that came to your mind was Peter. Yes? Love is patient. Well, put Jesus in there. Jesus is patient. How do I know? Peter! Right? Good grief, man. This guy talking all the time, whipping swords out, slicing off ears. What's he doing? Right? Jesus stuck with him. Jesus didn't give up on him. How else is he patient? Everybody remember when he had temptation with Satan? What did Satan offer him? The kingdoms of the world, if you'll just bow down, pause. Are the kingdoms of the world going to be Jesus's in the future? Yes. Notice he was patient, waiting for the right way to do it. He understood that if he corrupted this in any way, this would be an act of not trusting the Father, and therefore it would not be love. So he was patient, and he endured that out. How about the next one? Kind. How was Jesus kind? Well, notice that when there was a uh, woman of questionable character who came out to a well by herself that was a mixed breed, hereditarily speaking, who Jews would have nothing to do with whatsoever, Jesus wanted to interact. Nobody else did. 
In fact, wasn't it lepers that Jesus went to when everybody else ran away? It was tax collectors that Jesus went to when nobody else wanted them. It was prostitutes that Jesus went to when nobody else wanted anything to do it. Jesus is demonstrating what kindness looks like by finding the people who don't experience love and letting them experience it through him. That's God's love. The people who needed it, that the world wasn't even going to give their type of love to. Jesus said, I'll go one better. I'll bypass all those expectations. I'll find those people that need love. I will love them. That's the kindness of love. How about not jealous? Say, how how is Jesus not jealous? Interesting verse, John 4, 34. Look what it says. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, this happened just right after the woman at the well situation. Remember the apostles come, they've been in at Walmart, they were buying food, they came back, Master, eat something. He said, well, I got food you don't know about. Here's what it is. It's not about filling the belly. I've actually been nourishing the spirit. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. How's that not jealous? Is Jesus worried about doing better than Peter? No. He was singularly focused on one thing. This walk is between me and the Father. Guess what? The same walk is between you and the Father, not your brothers and sisters in Christ. He didn't have any reason that he needed to be jealous on any of these things. He's not in competition with the world. He's unfazed by the expectations of how people ought to be. Ladies, I'm getting ready to stab you in the throat. You ready? He didn't care about what fashion was. Yes, I'm sorry. He didn't. He didn't. Guys, we could stand to groom a little better. That's okay. Just for the consideration of our spouse. Nobody thinks that's funny. I think that's hilarious. I'm finding ear hair in places I should not have it there, man. I'm going through a trial right now. 45 is hard. Okay? So just deal. I know what you're It gets worse. It gets worse. I hear it. It's good. Thank you. Be loving towards me, please. I'm trying to bear my soul with you. But seriously. The world has put a lot of things to make us jockey against one another. When, I, when, when in God's eyes, it's not there. The great thing about seeing Jesus is he knew that. He was able to walk in confidence with that and never fall to the wayside because of it. How about this? Jesus never bragged. He wasn't worried about telling others who he was. In fact, when people wanted to go run and shout what had happened, he told them, be quiet. Even demons. What do you want with us, son of the most high? Stop telling people who I am. Can you imagine that conversation? Why didn't Jesus want people to know? He had a timing for everything, but he wasn't there to say, look at me, look at me, look at me. He wasn't worried about any of that stuff. He let the Father unveil it in his time. And he always, here's another interesting thing about bragging. Do you realize that Jesus submitted himself to a human being who was sinful to be baptized? Has that ever struck you as odd? I mean, John was a cool guy, right? Kind of weird. But he was still sinful. Jesus came to him and said, you must baptize me. Even John was like, wait a second, man. This isn't right. I know who you are. No, it's right to do it this way. Somebody who's got something to brag about does not submit themselves in those situations. You know the amazing thing about that? Jesus didn't care about anybody's expectations or thought about it. He only wanted to please the Father. That's love. That's love. How about this? He was not arrogant. He was not puffed up. He didn't always speak kindly to his enemies, but I tell you what he did. He was always pointing them to what the Lord was doing. This is what the Father wants. This is the Father's will. I'm doing the Father's will here. Father, 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 Father. You thought they would have got it after a while. Instead, they said, nope, it's blasphemy. Let's kill him. But he wasn't arrogant in any way. It was never look to himself. It was always about submission. He knew what it was to say and when to say it. He always exercised, uh, he, he, I wrote this down, he exercised love by restraining calling out Peter when he betrayed him. He let the rooster do that, didn't he? See, that's the interesting thing. If all of us looked at that and saw Jesus beaten as he was, look out and go, Peter, what's wrong with you? That's how I would have handled it. I even told you beforehand and you're still doing dumb things. What is... Right? Sounds like parenting, doesn't it? Notice Jesus didn't take that up and run with it. He simply let the sign take its place so that Peter knew. 
And that was all the conviction of heart that Peter needed in that moment. Notice that Jesus didn't have to be arrogant. Ha, I told you, Peter, you're a failure. He didn't do that. He never had to do that. How about the next one? Does not act unbecomingly. He was never shameful or disgraceful. He was always hospitable. In fact, he fed 5,000 people, right? Sounds like a pretty hospitable guy, especially when there's nothing to eat. How about the next one? Does not seek his own, not my will, but the Father's will be done over and over and over. It wasn't his own because he died for the sins of the world. There's your selfless act of love. Notice that he's not provoked. He was spit on. He was beaten. Had a crown of thorns mashed on his head. He was mocked. Prophesy for us, Christ. Who hit you this time? Lashes across his back. What do we find? He wasn't provoked to anger. In fact, I found this verse frightening when I think about what Jesus could have done in these moments. It's, it's the garden. It's, it's the time of his betrayal. Look what it says here. Of course, Peter comes in all rash, right? Cutting off ears and that kind of thing. Look what he says. Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to the Father? Now, is that connection pretty good? That's a local call for Jesus, okay? Understand that. Appeal to the Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Don't you think, Peter, that if I wanted to get out of this, I would just say, Father, help. And all of a sudden, you would have thousands of angels that would slaughter these people in a heartbeat. Now, to think about what's capable there, in the Old Testament, one angel killed 185,000 men in one night. That's what Jesus is saying about the possibility of exercising his power. If this was happening to you and you knew what was coming, would you have called on those angels and used that power? Would you have been provoked to taking matters in your own hands? And I showed them. Is that what life's about? I don't think so. How about the next one? He doesn't take into account wrong suffered. Was Jesus wronged? Man, he was wronged. Good grief. What did he say while he was on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, that's a nice way of saying ignorant people. It really is. But do you see the compassion behind it? Notice it wasn't ridicule and railing against them. You just wait until the second coming. He didn't do any of that stuff. What these people need is forgiveness, not a beating. It's awesome. He does not rejoice in unrighteousness. There was never a time that he found pleasure in or approved sin. But how about this? Rejoices with the truth. If you'll remember after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving a teaching. And a guy comes up to him who's a Roman centurion. He says, I got a servant that's sick. Come and heal him. Or he needs to be healed. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. He says, you don't have to. Because I know what it is to be in charge. You say, go here, they go here. You say, do that, they do that. All you need to do is speak the word, and I know that my servant will be healed. Now, this is what blows my mind, because Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Now, when Jesus heard this, he what? He marveled. God marveled at a human response. Now, it wasn't that he didn't know the guy was going to respond that way. There's many choices that the guy could have made in how he responded. But the fact that he was looking at Jesus and saying, all you have to do is say it because you have all authority and it's done, period. Why was he marveling? Because even Jewish people who had all this history weren't grasping this truth. This guy's a Roman centurion. He's not part of the fold. And yet he gets it. He marveled. And he said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Everybody who's had all this history, background, upbringing, culture, all of this great stuff. Wow, they should know it. And they're missing the main thing. Jesus can do any of it. He can do all of it. He rejoiced in that truth. How about the next one? Bears all things. This is interesting because it means protector. He is the door of the sheep. He tells us that he is. He is the good shepherd. Back whenever they used to keep sheep, they would always build a pen that was decently high to put up and there was only one way in this pen and at night so that wolves wouldn't get them, they would usher him in through this one door and then the shepherd of that flock would position himself in the doorway like this and crouch down to make sure that his feet were on the other and he would sit there and sleep there all night serving as the door so none of the sheep would have wolves come in and none of them would go astray to come out. He is our protector. 
He bears, he protects all things. He shields us from all things. How about the next one? He believes all things. Number one, he called Peter out of the boat, didn't he? Do you think that he would have called Peter out of the boat if he didn't think that Peter would believe and follow? He lasted a little while, didn't he? He had some good faith going on, right? Wow, Jesus, this is great. Oh my gosh, it's starting to get stormy. This is getting bad. And that's what happened, right? But he still believed that Peter could do it. He invited Peter to come into those faith situations. Why? He wanted Peter to exercise faith because he loved Peter. He wanted them all to exercise faith. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus showed up after Thomas had clearly doubted, he wasn't like, Thomas, what are we going to do with you? He doesn't do that at all. He invites Thomas to trust. Put your hand in my side and see. Thomas doesn't even need to do that. He falls on his knees. My Lord and my God. He led him into a brand new plane of faith he'd never been in before. It's love. How about hopes? All things. He never lost sight of the Father's plan. He always had a confident conviction about it because grace is always ensuring hope. How about this one? He endures all things. 40 days in the wilderness, the trial that he was on, enduring on the cross, satisfying the will of the Father was the goal. He gives us this instruction. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that, mystery writer of Hebrews? Fixing our eyes on who? Jesus. Jesus is going to model it for you. Think about how he lived and follow in that way. He's the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him, the what? The what? The joy. Do you have the joy, joy, joy down in your heart right now? Notice what he's saying here. Christ was able to look beyond the suffering and see it's worth it. It's worth it. Let me set a precedence for how my people ought to follow. Enduring whatever hardship needs to happen. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who was endured such, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, and this will happen to us if it hasn't already. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus' entire life was a model of love. And enduring until the end is part of that. Don't lose hope. How about the last one here? Love never fails. Interesting scripture in the Bible. Revelation 1.5. It describes Jesus Christ coming on the scene in the very opening of the book. And he says it's Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now watch this. To him who what? Loves us. This is the only time that that's mentioned of Jesus in present tense in the New Testament. Who loves us now? Who loves us? How did he show that? He released us from our sins by his blood. Does everybody see that the whole encompassing of love is a selflessness that comes forward? Jesus models that perfectly. You say, you know what? I just don't know that I can love like this. I just don't know I can love my brothers and sisters. Have you hung out with that person? Can you really love them? And the answer is, is in and of yourself, you cannot. Don't try. Stop trying. Maybe one of the greatest things we could ever do for our Christian walk is to stop trying. But you can start trusting. And you've got an entire model, four books that chronicle a life that was led in every step, every breath, every word, every gesture, every appearance. Love, 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 love. This is what God's love looks like. He is love. He paves the way for us for love. Now, I'm going to go ahead and bet that all of us in here at some point have a love struggle problem. We'll go through this list and we say, you know what, I don't check this off perfectly. Fantastic. We're all sinners. We're all in the same boat we've all been in at one time or another, yes? But where's the rescue? The rescue is the life of Christ. If you don't take the time, understand me please, if you don't take the time to ask Jesus to be that difference, we will never love and experience what he desires, what he died for us to experience in trying to love other people. The flesh will give you every reason why you shouldn't love a person. The enemy will attack you and tell you, don't even bother trying. You know you can't do it. Go ahead and come to those terms at the feet of the Father. Lord, I can't do it. I need you to do it through me. You have to do it through me. 
If there's any way that I'm going to be used of any worth, if there's any way that this spiritual gift that we've been studying on for so long is going to be utilized in the body of Christ, I can do it and work it all day long and speak it and think it and whatever else. But if I don't have love, it is a black hole. It is no good. Father, I need you to love through me. That's all I'm asking. It's just that we would have a time of prayer and submission to him. Father, be the love that you need out of me, in me. Let's pray. Father, I think that for the most part, lists in the Bible are pretty fun. I enjoy them. But when we start talking about deep, heartfelt, selfless, giving interaction, with the body of Christ and the exercising of spiritual gifts, utilizing our faith, utilizing discernment of spirits, or giving, or leading, or teaching, or wisdom, whatever it may be. Love is the essential ingredient, or it doesn't work. It doesn't build up the body. It doesn't encourage. It doesn't enlighten. It doesn't inspire. Father, it's amazing how the Scripture can make you feel like an empty vessel. And Father, how desperately we need to reflect on your love and be filled with your love and be submissive and, and be just admitting this body has never had the capacity to love as you call for us to in the body of Christ. We need Jesus to fuel this desperately. Thank you, God, that he is a model of love. Thank you that he is a model of endurance in those things. Thank you that he is the model of forgiveness in the midst of incredible suffering. Lord, how badly we need love. So I pray, God, each one of us, whether we're taking that time now, taking that time later, whatever it is, I pray, God, you'd bring us all to the point to recognize we can't love. It's not in our capacity to do so. It must be you loving through us. Father, prompt us for submission, please. By the power of your spirit, we pray it. Amen.